Welcome to the 254th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is my second COVID Calls discussion with Dr. Peter Chin Hong. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, April 6th, 2021, there are 2,863,045 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States has climbed to 555,621. China is reporting 4,636 deaths from COVID-19 and Trinidad and Tobago report 145 deaths. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is The Death of Dr. Amanda Cook Zivic from COVID-19, a loss for family and friends, for psychiatry, and in some way for us all. This was written by Dan Rodericks and appeared in the Baltimore Sun, January 14th, 2021. One year has passed since the first U.S. case of the novel coronavirus arrived at Snohomish County, Washington. Again, this piece appeared in January of this year. While the rest of us, 328 million of us, went about our business, the scope of sickness and death in the coming months was unimaginable. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention confirmed the positive test of a 35-year-old man who had returned to the United States from China on January 15th. 2020, the agency told us what it knew about the case and concluded its report by saying the CDC continues to believe the risk of 2019 in COVID to the American public at large remains low at this time. We all know the rest. We lived it. We're still living it. We stand on the banks of a swelling river of news about infections, hospitalizations, deaths. Some of us know people who died in the pandemic, but many do not. The casualty reports have started to become background noise or like the small print lists of American combat deaths that years ago appeared in newspapers. How is such a thing possible? The world is a big place, life is full of death, people come and go. How are we diminished by the deaths of those we do not know, strangers in far off nations or even down the street? Not since the last pandemic a century ago, has there been a loss of life on the American continent has there been such a loss of life on the American continent? It's an overwhelming crisis and hard to comprehend. But if you turn the numbers into faces, you can feel the loss at a critical mass. You think of breadwinners who died, auto mechanics who died, teachers who died, scientists, nurses, and doctors, multiples of each in each part of the nation, the nation diminished by the death of each. Our losses from this crisis are immeasurable but discernible and far heavier than we can yet appreciate. It hit me as I listened to what Amy Morgan, a social worker, had to say about her colleague and friend, Dr. Amanda Denise Cook-Zivic, the 44-year-old forensic psychiatrist who died just before Christmas. Amy and Amanda worked together at Clifton T. Perkins Hospital, the state psychiatric hospital in Jessup, Maryland. Amanda evaluated and treated patients, testified about them in court. In her work, she touched a lot of lives. She was an excellent doctor, Amy says. She was clinically astute, an excellent diagnostician, smart as a whip. The patients respected her. She was tough when she needed to be, soft when she needed to be. I saw her interview patients and testify in court. Her death is a great loss for the forensic psychiatry world and for her friends and family, her husband and children as well. Amanda Cook fell in love with forensic psychiatry around the time she fell in love with Mike Zivic a school teacher she met in a club in Baltimore when they were both in their 20s. He'd come from Pittsburgh, she'd come from Virginia. 
He was a teacher at South River High School in Anne Arundel County. She was in her residency at the University of Maryland Medical Center. They were a public service couple, one an educator and coach, the other a doctor devoted to the treatment of some of the most severely impaired and troubled people in Maryland. Amanda and Mike were married in 2004. They bought a row house near Patterson Park. They renovated a second, larger home nearby and moved there in the spring of 2010. They had two children, first a boy named Jackson, now eight, and a daughter named Kensington, now six. She was just an amazing person. She was absolutely gorgeous. She was incredibly smart, says Amanda's husband, who still teaches at South River and coaches the girls' basketball team there. Amanda grew up poor, but she didn't use that as an excuse. She used it as motivation to become a doctor. She was an amazing mother. I couldn't ask for a better partner. In December of 2020, Amanda became ill with a bacterial infection and so sick one day, she called Mike to say she could not walk. She went to Johns Hopkins Hospital. Tests for the coronavirus were negative, but then one day a test confirmed a COVID infection. She had trouble breathing. She was on a ventilator in a negative pressure room. Her condition worsened. Mike was with her when she died two weeks later on December 23rd. I never thought this would happen, he says. It's incredibly hurtful. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem normal. It doesn't seem anything. I asked about his kids. I don't know how much they're comprehending right now, he said. I know they miss her. They're definitely doing better than me. I expressed my sympathy, but the words seemed so meager compared to the size of the man's loss. And each day, the immeasurable but discernible losses for us all. The article was The Death of Dr. Amanda Cook Zivic from COVID-19 by Dan Rodericks in the Baltimore Sun. Okay, I'm going to turn to my conversation for today, and I'm really happy to bring Peter Chin Hong back to COVID calls. Let me introduce him to you. Peter Chin Hong is Associate Dean for Regional Campuses of the UC San Francisco School of Medicine. He's a medical educator who specializes in treating infectious diseases, particularly infections that develop in patients who have suppressed immune systems, such as solid organ and hematopoietic stem cell transplant recipients and HIV plus organ transplant recipients. He directs the Immunocompromised Host Infectious Diseases Program at UCSF. His research focuses on donor-derived infections in transplant recipients and molecular diagnostics of infectious diseases in patients with suppressed immune systems. Peter earned his undergraduate and medical degrees from Brown University before completing an internal medicine residency and infectious disease fellowship at UCSF, where he's professor of medicine and director of the year-long inquiry program in the School of Medicine. He was the inaugural holder of the Academy of Medical Educators Endowed Chair for Innovation in Teaching. And I'm really pleased to have him back. Peter Chin Hong, thanks again for coming on COVID Calls. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, great to be re reunited with you. I, as I was saying just before we started talking, that call that we had um, last year was, I mean, it was in June. And I don't know if you remember, but it was, well, it was June 18th. And at that time, there were 118,057 deaths from COVID-19 in the United States. And here we are, 555,000 and then some. I don't know how to ask you to account for the whole year, but I guess one thing I'd like to ask is, is do you, at that time, do you think we'd end up here where we are with that death toll? No, I think if you had told me we would reach more than 500,000, I would be shocked in my June 2020 self. And the reason why is because I, I thought that, first of all, from a virus perspective, it would possibly burn out. From a political perspective, even though there were a lot of uh, differing opinions at the top, we were hoping that good will prevail, but apparently it didn't. Um, and countless small hundreds of thousands died. I, I hearken back to what Dr. Deborah Burke said when she was interviewed post-administration and she reflected that really, the policy really was responsible for hundreds of thousands of additional deaths. And I think that, that number is really hard to grasp. 
and to really uh, reflect on the fact that policy and politics can really inform how people healthcare, how they they have they can acquire disease, how they can uh, live, and who gets to die. I mean, I think uh, all of that was would have been shocking if you had told me that this would have continued at this pace. It actually got worse uh, from June till the end of the year. There is, uh, well, let, let's start in the, in the present and then I have many other things I wanna ask you about you know, what it's been like for you in this last year. Um, you, you actually said just a few days ago in an interview, you were discussing the variants. Um, there's one particular variant I think that's um, at play there in San Francisco Bay Area right now. It, this is what you said. This, you said it's like a shapeshifter of a virus. So if we don't do it now, vaccination. We may have to vaccinate everybody else again if some new super variant comes on board. And it seems to be a coronavirus variant from uh, from India in California now. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing there and, and your concern about how these variants may be difficult to deal with. Yes, yeah, so variants in COVID-19 is one example of the ways in which I am completely respectful of this virus and it's completely continuing to surprise me every single day. I mean, the fact that a relatively stable virus, uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, can mutate uh, at such a pace, you know, basically there's a mutation every two weeks, but that it can emerge in a population with such consequences like uh, increased transmissibility, um, potentially making our immune therapies not work as well, and scarily potentially impacting uh, vaccination uh, continues to amaze me and humble, you know, I think we're left humble by how this virus is. To answer your question in California, you know, we, we've had some, have, you know, some big profile variants uh, emerge. Probably the biggest one first was our own California variant, uh, which actually emerged first in Denmark and then it came to California and in December, it was about 5% of cases. By January, it was 20%. And now we're inching closer to 50% in some areas. It's more in the north. There's uh, B117 first described in the UK. Also, sort of like muscling its way in. It would probably win against California as it's winning all over the country and all over the world, wherever it sets up shop. Um, and then... You know, we've also had a sprinkling of others. So the Brazilian, P1, the South African, and most recently, the Indian variant, uh, first described in India and very prevalent now in one of the states, Maharashtra, where it's, you know, there's that's sort of like the biggest burden of COVID right now in India. So, you know, we've been, every time we see a variant, we have to hem and haw, we have to say, does it impact vaccination? Does it impact therapy? Is How easy is it to get? And the answer is always yes, to some extent. Um, and, you know, it gets exhausting after a while. Just to stay with that for a, a second, I'm assuming there are also sort of less transmissible variants that it maybe works both ways, but those die out more quickly or we don't we don't trace those as much. So the only ones we have to really think about are the ones that increase the transmissibility rate. Yeah. So a lot of um, biologists are talking about this phenomenon called convergent evolution, where over time, like in Darwin's finches, you get multiple mutants being formed or, or things uh, evolving, but they evolve to kind of always include something that's good for the species. Uh, in the beginning, they're kind of a hodgepodge of things, but every time it mutates, they kind of all mutate to have something, some superpower that seems to keep them alive and propagate themselves. So that superpower that seems to be common amongst all the variants that we're hearing about because they are emerged um, is the transmissibility uh, superpower. Now, you're right, there are lots of variants being produced all the time. We don't hear about them because, you know, they, they're not being detected or, or they're of little consequence or they don't appear in clusters. So, um, you know, in fact, again, most people think that at least once every two weeks, there's some sort of 
variant being produced. The key to variant production is transmission. So one of the strategies overall, no matter how you do it, is to break that chain of transmission. And from a public health perspective, uh, it's very, very difficult to do as people want to get back to normal life. And then around the world, even with vaccines looming, as you know, there's a, been a huge problem with vaccine equity. So you can do whatever you want in the United States, so long as other countries don't have access to uh, well-priced vaccines or somebody helping them purchase them, uh, they're going to be variants being produced all the time. We hear a lot about this term herd immunity, but when you hear that, what's your response to that concept? It, and even with just what you're saying, you know, we like to talk about the pandemic in terms of the United States or China or even continents like Europe, but it's, it's clearly a global phenomenon. So can the United States reach a vaccination percentage that then somehow keeps it from reemerging at the level that we've seen this year? Or is that truly not possible as long as the rest of the world, parts of the world are not vaccinated? Yeah, so I think herd immunity has different uh, definitions. Certainly there's regional herd immunity, which I think we could achieve. I mean, right now, I think California is moving towards a state of regional herd immunity or San Francisco mm -hmm. is. In San Francisco, we've actually vaccinated almost 40, 40 to 50% of all adults in the, in the county. Um, California in general, around 30%. And then nursing home residents over 70 to 80%. So I think that's regional herd immunity. What it means is that you're kind of able to open up things in a regional level. Um, but then there's national immunity, herd immunity, which is going to be more challenging. And then true herd immunity is going to not happen probably for years because there will be, you know, borders are porous from a disease perspective. Even if you have virus screening at the borders, uh, you can let somebody in who didn't know they were positive, especially in this virus where you are most transmiss transmissible uh, when you're not symptomatic. And, you know, it only takes a few people to sort of set off the fires again. So, you know, it's really, really tough. Added to that, again, is a specter of variants. So the more infectious the virus is, the higher the level of herd immunity you need to protect the people who couldn't have an immune response or who didn't want to get vaccinated or were hesitant around it. And the second scary thing, which we're learning just in the last few days more, is that with the B117 variant, it's descending lower into kids. So in the regular COVID, kids, particularly under 12, and in Korea, they actually did some of the best studies early on showing this from contact tracing. Um, they're starting to get infected with B117. They've been high profile outbreaks now in Minnesota and in, in Canada. Um, and they seem to be going to the hospital, they seem to be getting sicker, because this B117 variant first described in the UK is kind of a bulldog of a variant. It passes your nose, it bites onto that receptor, and it just holds on, it doesn't let go. So that's what we mean by more transmissible. So that segment of the population, which we were told all last year, I should say told a lot of times by politicians, not by physicians, um, that children couldn't get this or they wouldn't get it, uh, it wouldn't be bad. Now you're, you're painting a bleaker picture there in terms of this new variant. Yeah, because we don't, well, first of all, we need a little bit more data to make sure this is not just a, you know, one event, for example, was in a hockey game and there are other features behaviorally that make it more of a super spread event. But so I think we need to sort of settle up and look at the data some more. Uh, but the anecdotes are very compelling. And um, you're right. I mean, we've been banking on this concept of herd immunity and vaccination rates in individuals over 16 to 18, not thinking, you know, thinking we'd have some more time to get to the under 16s, much more than under 12. So to really get to that level, I guess the bottom line is our definition of what herd immunity is maybe changing because of the specter of this B117 uh, variant first described in the UK. Just to stay with this for a second and please tolerate these questions from a non-scientist who's still trying to get my mind around the science over a year later. But um, with this situation, the variants and the vaccines and this dance between the two, are you generally 
um, confident that the vaccines that are being developed right now can encompass most of these variants? And over what time period can they do so? What I have in mind is my annual influenza vaccination, in which I know that that vaccination doesn't immunize me against all strands of influenza at any given year. Is, is that what I should have in mind with COVID going forward or something different? So let's paint the best picture. The best picture is that the current vaccines will work against many of the variants that we have popping up until the world can get immunized, maybe in two or three years. If that's the case, the vaccines are so powerful, actually, particularly the mRNA vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna, most people actually expect that immunity to last for years, maybe two or three years, if not longer. Um, the, um, the other vaccines were, you know, we're not completely sure of, but I also believe that that will be the case as well. Now with respect to variants on, on the rise, you know that, uh, some vaccines are not as good against some of them as others are. Um, the South African variant, for example, and the Brazilian P1 variant, I'm very scared of mainly because of AstraZeneca's poor and dismal performance against particularly the South African variant. The South African government started immunizing folks with AstraZeneca, then they had to donate it to other places because it just didn't work well there. So not all vaccines for the variants are created equal. Nevertheless, companies are doing certain things to, uh, re you know, to address that future uh, possibility. So making boosters with uh, some of these new variant strains, making a multiplex vaccine, and then toying around with the multiplex, meaning you put a bunch of variants in one vaccine, like mm -hmm. the flu vaccine mm -hmm. has four strains or types in it. Um, and then a universal vaccine, which the mRNA vaccines may end up being a universal vaccine, because what it does is it, let's see if I have my model. So what it does is it, Create, gives you that message for the entire spike protein. So you develop a wide repertoire of antibodies against it, which seems to protect against uh, some of the variants. So a couple of weeks ago, we got some information that the Pfizer mRNA vaccine was 100% effective at six months in the South African variant, which mm -hmm. I was really shocked by and pleasantly shocked by. So again, coming back to your question, the answer is maybe we'll need additional boosters. Um, maybe it will depend on the type of vaccine you get. Maybe it'll depend on what's circulating in the world. Mm -hmm. At some my, uh, minimal sense, somebody like the WHO needs to do surveillance like we do for influenza, figure out what the hotspots are, test them against the vaccines people have, and then make recommendations about whether or not people need a booster or not. Just to bring it back to this sort of confluence of the science and the politics, I've, we've heard a lot uh, in the last couple of weeks about the concept of the vaccination passport. I mean, people are eager to travel again, and if people have been vaccinated, they're going to be, of course, relieved, and um, not to diminish that in any way, shape, or form, but again, as you pointed out earlier, it's because we're vaccinated in the United States doesn't mean you may be vaccinated somewhere else. And... Likewise, other countries um, or even other parts of the United States may be somewhat suspicious, want to see some proof um, that people have vaccinated before Americans come in, especially given this year that people have had in the United States. I wonder your thoughts about this vaccination passport. I mean, it has been a couple of high profile individuals who've tried to make it, bring it back into this political space that Trump occupied last year and say, this is the government once again telling you what to do and they can't make you carry this thing. And it's all of the usual sort of spin up around this, but I wonder if you could sort of boil that down a little bit and tell us what you think about that concept of that passport. So first of all, my first comment about immunity passports or vaccination passports for COVID is that it's coming regardless of if we like it or not. The writing is on the wall. So rather than fight it, I think we have to figure out how people can use them responsibly. And right now, I think a lot of people are worried that it's not um, super ethical because right now, not everybody has access to the vaccine. So if you make an activity only 
available to people who have the vaccine, but not everybody has an equal chance of getting the vaccine, that is kind of weird. If you make it such that the activity is still available to everyone, including people who've had vaccines and they can prove it, and maybe the other people need to do a test or something before a virus test before you have access to that activity, then maybe it might be okay as a transition period. Um, but to just say only vaccinated people have access to some activities, and if you're not vaccinated, you don't, uh, it sort of reeks of, you know, uh, some of these, uh, you know, handmade steel or whatever kinds of novels that uh, of the past with the haves and the have nots. So that's kind of my consideration. Um, and it doesn't mean that even if you have a vaccine passport that says, yes, you've been vaccinated, doesn't mean you can have a, a free pass either because uh, there's no 100% guarantee that you did have protection even if you were vaccinated. So I think in a public setting, people would still have to wear masks, et cetera, on, in, if in a large group. So one more thing about the science before I ask you a few more more general questions about your thoughts about the politics of it um, is about the fourth wave concern. And I guess beyond that, fifth and sixth and, and whatever wave, I mean, is this sort of how we need to acclimate ourselves to COVID as we go into 2021 in the United States and in other places that have seen infection rates like the United States, Brazil or Europe and other and other places, it's just going to be this sort of wave dependent on opening up, closing down the weather, various other things that draw people together. Yes. I mean, people debate about whether or not we're going to have a fourth wave in the U.S. Actually, we do have a fourth wave right now. More than half the states do have a increase in cases. The cases are uh, exploding right now in some parts of the Midwest, like Michigan, uh, looking very troublesome in the Northeast, um, uh, New Jersey in particular, uh, Connecticut, they're all like in the 50% increase range, Michigan more than 100% increase, Florida, of course, fueled possibly by spring breakers with not using protection, uh, also surging. So whether or not you call it a national fourth wave or a regional fourth wave, the point is our cases are increasing by more than 15% as a country, but when you look at these regions, they are actually much more than that. So yes, I think we have to be used to the idea that, you know, there is a risk benefit where we need to reopen, but there will also be increased cases. There's a specter of vaccines. We have to develop new uh, therapies because vaccines isn't going to be the panacea. And we have to develop new therapies. And they, there are therapies being developed uh, that are more, uh, uh, easily given in an outpatient setting like pills, like influenza. Uh, mm -hmm. So these are all afoot. So I guess it's the new world and whether we can party like it's 2019, uh, I don't think so, not for a long time. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Dr. Peter Chin Hong today. And um, Peter, you're a specialist in uh, treating patients who have suppressed immune systems. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you saw among that population with COVID over this past year. Yeah, so in the beginning, we were really worried that uh, individuals with suppressed immune systems would be at the brunt of COVID, uh, you know, severe COVID, like we've seen with HIV patients, with other illnesses um, and transplant patients, uh, people with cancer. Um, but the, the fact is when you have adequate resources, like from early part one in California, we certainly did have a lot of adequate resources. Um, we we're able to um, take care of these patients really appropriately and we didn't see really excess mortality in that group. Where we're running into problems with immunocompromised individuals is really in response to vaccinations. So when uh, they're not responding well at all, and that's not surprising, um, but uh, again, whether or not we need to develop more sophisticated tests to figure out true immune response, because the antibody test isn't the only uh, way to determine if somebody's responded is one issue, but whether or not they need a third shot in a two shot series, uh, the fact is, 
they're not responding quite as well as the general population, which is true about vaccines in general in this population, which makes it even more important for the people who can respond to get immunized. So it, it just puts the onus on needing more able-bodied people to get to be the henchmen to protect the vulnerable people against uh, COVID. Just to stay with this for a second, I've spoken with several guests over the last year about sort of historical parallels and thinking about COVID in the context of HIV and AIDS. And I'd sort of like to get your perspective on that, you know, of that community of, of um, patients and, and sufferers, how they have viewed this last year. I mean, it's been such a rush to the vaccine. I mean, it's been treated as a, as a national emergency. And with that previous pandemic, I think, of course, a lot was learned. But I wonder also sort of the psychological toll of people who see, you know, the nation rushing to deal with this one pandemic while we still have this other sort of global pandemic with us. I, I don't know if you engage those kind of conversations with your patients at all, but even if you don't, I'm so curious how you think about that issue. Yeah, for, first of all, I'll start off with the similarities, which because I think they're very compelling between COVID and uh, HIV in the early days. Um, first of all, there was a political response, which I think was actually very similar uh, in terms of not thinking it was us um, or being very delayed. Uh, and I can recant with complete clarity, even though my brain is fogged otherwise for last year, of the various missteps that our political leaders made in from the beginning where and I was looking at Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong as shining examples of what to do. And we can look at the US as what not to do. I guess if you were writing a playbook for virus, if the virus was writing an instruction manual for how to make other viruses happy, they would write about the history of the US response to the pandemic, which is to not have enough testing, to only test people when they're really sick, but not when they're not sick. And to sort of walk around with Vaseline on your eyes. Um, the other aspect of COVID, apart from delayed national response, was the idea of other. And that gets to another issue that, you know, we can talk about for, for hours, which is the idea, first of all, that the virus was China. And this is the U.S., so it's not an American virus, and it's just there in this far-off land. But the metaphor, when that changed for me, was really seeing the, the Grand Princess come to Oakland, um, on that cruise and all these people had COVID on the cruise. And then uh, political leaders said, you know, our numbers would look bad if they came on ground. Uh, so we wouldn't count them as our own virus from the US. Um, but again, that was the metaphor of the virus coming to our shores. Of course, it was already here. We didn't have the test. So that idea of other was very much so in HIV as well with Haitians, hemophiliacs, uh, you know, uh, uh, those who men who have sex with men, etc. But of course, now everybody knows it's everywhere. It's not just amongst those other groups, just like in COVID. I think the differences you alluded to is that everyone felt immediately once it sunk in that uh, anyone can get it. There was a lot more widespread fear, and that fear actually drives a lot more of a coordinated response. It was why Operations Warp Speed was Operation Warp Speed, and the U.S. was able to invest billions in making sure we had uh, adequate uh, vaccines and then some banking on the fact that not all vaccines would work at the time for people in this country, but not thinking necessarily about the rest of the world until the political administration changed and the US rejoined WHO and COVAX to help fund vaccination efforts in middle and lower income countries. So, that's the difference, but they're also very chilling similarities. And of course, the stigma and hate that are common with both HIV and with COVID. The stigma and the hate 
uh, it's, I appreciate you surfacing that issue. And I wanted to ask you about, about that, you know, anti-Asian violence uh, in word and in deed has been staggering throughout this pandemic. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind addressing your thoughts on that. I mean, last time we talked, you really, you shared your, your own family background and your really fascinating and interesting upbringing in Trinidad and Tobago and a family that's drawn from different corners of the world, but you have strong Asian heritage. And so it affects you personally, um, as well as I'm imagining you thinking about it from a physician's point of view, worried about your, your patients too, that they not have bias and fear layered on top of their illness that they may have. How have you processed that issue? How have you dealt with it? I think I'm still processing it. Um, I think it, it's, it was, it's such a chronic problem. It's like you're having this chronic medical condition with acute flares. And I think that's really what it feels like as an Asian American right now in 2021 America. Um, I think early in the pandemic, we saw a spike against uh, Asian hate with a lot of crimes, people being violent, vandalism, uh, racial slurs, uh, um, and all of that. Then it sort of like faded into background consciousness, even though it was always happening. And political leaders in the US were continuing to use terms like uh, China virus with a lot of accentuation of the syllables and uh, Kung flu uh, with wanton abandon really sending the signal that it was fine to sort of label the virus as coming from a place, but it's different from saying it's, you know, Lyme disease, which comes from Lyme, Connecticut. Lyme doesn't refer to race or ethnicity, whereas China virus does. So I think it, it made it easy for people who are always uh, on the fence anyway as to whether or not there was an excuse to lash out at a certain uh, ethnic group. And, and that's what happened in a big way. And the real heartbreak that emerged recently, um, because in the beginning it just seemed like general Asian violence, the heartbreak in, that's emerged in the last one or two months in the United States is the attacks against Asian elders. So if you really want to think of a way you can gnaw at the hearts and consciousness of Asian Americans in the United States, you know, attack our grandmothers or elderly mothers or, or, or uncles or great uncles who have no defenses physically, who've born, uh, you know, racial epithets all their life and just like knock them down when they don't have any way to defend you. And uh, you can, you would have succeeded. And that's what's been happening in recent times with even deaths of uh, some Asian American elderly uh, individuals. So I think that is really when uh, people felt incensed. Um, I think a lot of new Asian American activists were born during the last few weeks and um, people have just started, you know, enough is enough. We, <laughs> you attack our, our elderly relatives or elderly community members that is the point of no return, you know, that is the core of what uh, many cultural values around Asian America uh, revolves around. And um, it's heartbreaking to see. When we talked last year, of course, the context of our discussion was the protest movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. And we talked about that in, in detail. And um, you spoke at that time very uh, clearly about the moral imperative of that, but you also talked about it from a public health perspective. And I, I wanted to bring the anti-Asian violence back into that frame because you said it more clearly than anybody I had spoken to up to that point, which is that um, anti-racism is uh, an effective public health measure. And I feel like, I, I wonder how we can apply that same sort of thinking because I feel like the anti-Asian hate crimes and bias issues that we've seen haven't yet been fully drawn into that discussion about that's another way that we need to actually confront this pandemic and, and any sort of 
health crisis because if people are not seeking medical care because they're afraid or if it's adding to their stress and their allostatic load, they're maybe more susceptible to getting sick. I wonder how, I mean, just sort of take a lesson from your own skill as a public health communicator. How do we get that message across? I think it's very, very challenging uh, because one of the central issues in Asian American uh, hate crime, Asian American uh, racial violence is invisibility. Uh, it's been invisible to media until these high profile attacks recently. It's been invisible to all of our groups because uh, there's so much um, variation in Asian American. Sure, you can see there's a lot of variation in every race and ethnicity, but particularly around Asian Americans, the variation is particularly um, made invisible because of the model uh, minority myth and the fact that everyone thinks you, you see an Asian American, they have lots of resources, they're well plugged into healthcare, um, they can do, they have a big extended family that will take care of them, which is not true at all in many groups. So I think that's the battle that has to be made. And also you have a, a, a group that's where, again, it's a chronic problem. So you kind of just put it in the backbone and you accept some sort of racism every time you walk around with because um, that's the way it's always been. Uh, politically, it's been like that since stemming from the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act and Japanese internment. So it's kind of woven into the fabric of the nation. And so it's a chronic toothache. And so it's difficult to bring yourself up from that um, for Asian groups who are so disparate to kind of come together as one. But I think recently there's been kind of a renaissance of that. But coming back to your question about health and racism, it's very, very challenging with Asians. Um, a lot of it is mental health. And one of the most um, meaningful things that I'm recently become involved in is to work with education of psychiatrists around that. So um, using that lens of where people come from, even though, and that racial racism that they've borne all their life, as a way to uh, take care of some of the mental illness we've been seeing through a cultural lens. So, you know, it's, you know, you can see the heart attacks and all of those things. Um, but the hardest part is just understanding the mental illness, which is stigmatized. You don't see it necessarily come to the hospital until it's too serious. Um, but above all, it's under this cloak of invisibility. It's like you're Harry Potter and you're wearing that cloak. So you can't even see what all the impact of all of this is on this population. Just as a reminder, you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Dr. Peter Chin Hong today. And I wonder if we could talk, and the last time we discussed, you talked really, again, very movingly about your students and the various things they were dealing with last year. Could you update us a little bit about what it's been like to be a medical educator or a student or a resident at this time? Yes, I think it's been very, very difficult for students. When I talked to you last year, those students had actually still had the privilege of seeing each other and knowing each other as a class, a physical class, because mm -hmm. it was middle of that year when they, they were shut down. Now, one year later, I can't paint a great picture for this class because they've never seen each other as a class or known each other as a class, only as flattened two-dimensional structures on Zoom calls or online classes, as you know, videos off muted. And that really takes away from the complexity of personality and character. I'm sure they're getting together in person for things that you need to in medicine, like, you know, taking care of patients or learning how to take care of patients, but particularly in early learners, you don't get as many opportunities. So what it leads to is just that a harder community to, to, to make. And, and that leads to a lot of anxiety and um, you know, that, that takes its toll not only on students, but on faculty, because I think, uh, you know, we've been seeing some of the repercussions of that trickle up to, you know, problems that happen in the Zoom room and uh, issues that you have to solve. So 
you know, many pundits have claimed that from a educational perspective, and I'm sure you have thought about this too a lot, Scott, that many of these students are almost, depending on what age group you look at, uh, almost like a lost generation of some sorts because their personal and social development is so different from previous generations. And even in more advanced students or graduate students or professional students, I, I worry about that. Um, but I have faith in people that they can be resilient and bounce back. But it's going to be a big tool. I mean, even myself as an educator, like before we launched this call, I was telling you that I, I still have this brain fog. I mean, the year has been tough. I don't know how long it will take to recover. I've, I felt like I haven't been present as a as an instructor for my students. You know, they're in subtle ways, like the extra time it takes to respond to an email just because you're so exhausted. Mm. Or when you're meeting somebody one-on-one -on, -one on a Zoom flat call, how could it be the same as a student coming into your office when there's so much rich uh, communication that happens non-verbally? Um, so because I realized over time that as an educator, what drove me wasn't just like speaking to a flat screen. It was really speaking to a human and getting positive re reinforcement from seeing that human have light bulbs that grow up. Uh, when they see certain concepts. But I think as faculty, some of that was, a lot of that was deficient in this last year. And just like there's a tool in students, there's a tool on, on faculty as well. I'm really glad you said that because I can totally relate to that. And I think a lot of times, you know, students, and maybe this is where they're acculturated to believe that, you know, the, the expert is there and they're there to write down what the expert says. But anybody who's taught at all knows that teachers get just as much, if not more, from the interaction with students. It, it sharpens their skills and they learn more. And I've thought about that, too, that, that for teachers, there's going to need to be additional training to make up for that period of time that was missed in those in those kind of settings. You mentioned a couple times that it's the difficulty of the year for you and even this feeling you have right now that it's almost you sort of see the year through a fog. How have you coped? What have you been doing to de-stress uh, at the end of a, a day or a week or a month? I don't know even what kind of increments you're dealing with there periods of time when you're under sort of heightened stress and then you're able to relieve it. How have you dealt with that, Peter? I think I haven't dealt with it very well. Um, uh, I, you know, I can't lie. I, I, I feel like for much of the year, you say, well, I'll just do work hard for two, a month or two, and then it'll be over. But those months kept on coming, and it never seemed to be over. And I think for California, the end of the year was like the worst ever. I mean, we worked so hard during the year, but then the end of the year, there was like physical bodies all over the place. Um, portable morgues in LA um, using ICU capacity as a metric, which was like the most extreme metric you can use. Um, and it was just chilling. Um, and that what led, what that leads to in a lot of the workforce, even though we had kind of the aspect of the vaccines coming to hold on to, was just like sheer exhaustion. And, um, and it wasn't easy to take time off either. I mean, you can take time off, but your mind was still there and you're still being contacted or emailed or whatever. It was hard to disconnect when there was a fire all around you. Now I think we have some pause, um, although I just mentioned that more than half the states in the US are seeing an uptick right now. But at least in California, we have a little bit of a pause and sometimes that time and reflection is initially more painful because then you have to process all of the things that happened last year. Um, but in terms of things to center myself, uh, you know, there's always family, uh, but, but that they've been uh, not having me attentive for a whole year, which is tough. My, my, even my, my mom and, and then there were my students, we talked about that and how they've suffered, I think from my inattention. Um, I guess you realize that there are only certain things you can do. There are limits. You have to set limits. I don't think I've set the best limits, but I'm trying to do that better now that I have to pause. Um, but 
you know, you take up fun things like baking all sorts of versions of banana bread, um, <laughs> using different combinations of wheat flour and rice flour to make it chewy and moist and using different uh, toppings like, you know, blackberries versus blueberries versus strawberries. And how about mixed berries and chocolate chips, you know? <laughs> so those are the kinds of things you do. Or you like binge out on yeah. TV and you watch like Indian matchmaking or, um, yeah. you know, you know, catch up on, make sure you finish Shit's Creek because everybody's talking about it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, those are the kinds of things that you do. But I must say that, and there was an interesting article in New York Times that that really spoke to me which is the phenomenon that people really held on to a smaller circle during the year than normal. And because normally all of us have such wide circles of friends mm -hmm. and, and how that's really evolved as relationships become really, really smaller and closer. And maybe that's not a bad thing, um, but it is a big change for people, I think. You spoke about your childhood last time uh, and about your pathway into into medical school. And I wonder if you've thought about that much. This you've probably been too busy, maybe. But I, you know, myself, I've thought a lot about um, my childhood this year. In part because I thought about my grandparents a lot this year, and I was very, very close to my grandparents, and and they um, almost all of them had passed away before this pandemic started but um that's been you know my childhood has been on my mind a lot in those relationships and the closeness that we had which i took for granted as a kid you know i should have access to my grandparents every day that's what my childhood was like i i, I don't know if that speaks to you at all but i'm sort of curious what what you've thought about in, in terms of your your upbringing as you've dealt with this pandemic um i've thought a lot about my upbringing um i thought a lot about so my dad had died uh, several years ago and I, so I think, I still think about him every day. I think he was the person that uh, was my sort of uh, co-navigator during this whole thing. Um, I, I, I think about, you know, my grandmom, I, I think about my mom, uh, these pe people who, I think we, we are close to them in life um, or growing up and then you, you take that unconditional love for granted or maybe you don't take it for granted, you, it's always there but then you don't have it or during a time of crisis, you you need that uh, anchor to help you um, be strong. And I, I, I think like you, Scott, I definitely thought about my ancestors during this time, um, where I come from. Uh, in a sense, I felt like as an infectious disease doctor, all the things I did in life, even though they seemed unrelated at the time, kind of prepared me for this year, um, you know, whether or not it was just the biology of infections or other things like communication, because I was a teacher and I love teaching. And, you know, what better way to use communication during a year of mixed messaging and uh, shaky political statements than to be a good communicator so you can help people um, understand the barrage of information they're getting. Um, I think my my sense of the love I got growing up helped me because that was that core of resilience I had uh, during the year that kept me going. So I think all these things kind of came together in this year, mm -hmm. so to speak, mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a very um, telling way that, that like you, Scott, I reflected a lot. I think this year gave us a lot of time to reflect on how we got to the place that we got to. I don't know if how you'll ever have time to do it, but I uh, selfishly, I hope you'll write about it um, and drawing <laughs> out that, that connection. Cause I've thought a lot about our previous conversation in that, in that regard. And, and even what you just said that you felt like somehow it was a broader preparation that didn't, you didn't fully understand until the, the trials of this last year. I'm, I'm almost up on time with my conversation with Peter Chin Hong. I, I didn't want to ask you about mental health support. Um, is UCSF been providing that as a given to staff and to students? How have you been able to avail yourself and others in your community avail yourself of those supports? So I was really proud of UCSF from the beginning. They always had good mental health support because it came very, it became very clear that 
actually, and, and I still think a lot of people don't realize this, but mental health is going to be the biggest fallout from this pandemic. Uh, it's, people are starting to write about it, but I think, and just speaking for myself, look at me, I, I have this brain fog still, and the sun is shining in California with, in terms of cases. So I think all this needs to be addressed. It's going to lead to a lot of loss of productivity in the next few years. But nevertheless, UCSF as an employer did have resources for staff and faculty and students, not only like individual sessions for therapy, but apps and things that you can do for meditation. Um, but the, the point is we need to take advantage of it too and to integrate it into our calendars. Just like we make an appointment to have a meeting, we should make the appointment to slow down, to meditate, to do yoga, to put on that relaxation app, to do mindfulness. You think that's going to shape medical education as well? This idea that you said mental health is going to be the sort of the long tail of this disaster uh, strikes me that's going to have to be built in much more structurally, not just for doctors, but for essential workers across the board, I guess for people across the board. Yes, definitely, because I think everybody should be trained to address mental health issues. I mean, they probably manifest in other ways that we're seeing on the society stage, like gun violence and other, and these violent attacks against Asian American elders. I mean, at the root of it is people's anxiety about an uncertain future, potentially that fuels or accentuates that underlying racism that they've had. Um, and that might be the tipping point. But yeah, so if everybody is trained to do it, and I think some of the movement in California, for example, to empower social workers to do some of the work that police used to do or in that regard is, is the right move. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I love that idea of empowering lots of different people in lots of different segments to address mental health, to recognize it. Otherwise, we'll continue to have the, the after, you know, the, the fallout uh, and, you know, more of these violent attacks. Just a reminder that you can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Please do join me tomorrow. We have actually two hours of COVID calls tomorrow, two episodes back to back. First, we'll be talking about uh, mathematics in the pandemic with Michael Perini, and then uh, we'll be talking in the second hour, uh, returning to Cancer Alley and talking about COVID-19 and the PM 2.5 problem in Louisiana. I wanna thank my guest today, Peter Chin Hong for coming back on COVID calls. And I hope um, at some point later, we can bring you back a third time to reflect because it's really been powerful to hear you talk about this this last year. Thanks for everything you're doing, Peter. Thank you. And if people want to hear more about my life story, actually this evening at UCSF, I'm giving the last lecture, you know, that famous, um, uh, it's something we do at UCSF as a tradition as well. And uh, you can hear a lot about my upbringing and music and if you're lucky, maybe some dancing, but maybe not. Wait, is that going to be live on Zoom? People can watch that? It's on live on Zoom, yeah. Uh, it's okay. on, on YouTube, actually. And I can, I can send you the link. Uh, you can um, let, uh, look at it yourself, Scott. I think you might find it interesting since you remembered a lot about what I told you last time. So. Uh, we'll definitely promote that link and um, make that available for people. And I'm uh, very humbled that you made time for this discussion, knowing what you have to do tonight. So we'll let you go, Peter. Thanks again for your time. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Mm -hmm.